Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Beautiful morning here in South Florida. Let's begin this morning, as we often do, we always do, by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that you sent your only Son, born of a woman, went to the cross and died for us, was buried, and then you raised him from the dead on the third day, so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never perish, but has eternal life. Father, today we just want to pray for the church here and across the country and around the world. We pray for especially the persecuted church, Father. We pray also this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct our goings-on here, our gathering together, hearing of the word, singing, fellowshipping, giving. We ask, too, Father, that as we leave at the end of this service today, that we would bring with us the understanding that we've gained from your word today, and that we'd put it into practice. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. I remember when my daughter was that little. Barely. (laughs) Good morning again, everybody. We have a few announcements today. The first one is the next Sunday is October, October 6th to be precise, and we will then celebrate the Lord's Supper together at that time. We'll be talking about the Lord's Supper today, and it's interesting, I guess that's the right word for it. It's wonderful that the passage we're going to be on in 1 Corinthians is going to be the Lord's Supper next Sunday, so that worked out really well. We've been... uh, Looking at Chosen People Ministries, one of the evangelistic ministries that we support, and their, their mission is to evangelize the Jewish people, and as I've mentioned before, Rich Freeman is going to be with us right before Christmas, December 22nd, and we're going to have a combined Hanukkah and Christmas service. So Rich will talk to you about the fact, what's, what Hanukkah is about, and how it, it, actually important the event was um, for the nation of Israel, and then by extension, for us, because Christ was born under the nation of Israel. Today I have the pleasure also of giving a report. It's a report from Pastor Kingsley about his South Africa mission trip. He's still there, but he's just about finishing up. He's flying back to Canada tomorrow. Well, his flight from Canada over here all the way to South Africa took 34 hours. I want you to think about that. Those of us who have, most of us have traveled on planes. I, I complain when I have to go from Florida to Arizona. You know, five hours. I don't think I can make it. 34 hours. That tells you something. Mm. Um, he started in a remote area and evangelized to farmers in that area. Um, then he moved to a place called Lanceria and uh, 43 miles outside Johannesburg. Wasn't able to go to Johannesburg. I'll talk about that in a minute why that was, like I've mentioned before, uh, the possibility of that. He said that a lot of people that he met, a majority of the South Africans, brag about good works as a prerequisite to their salvation. Many of them had not the slightest idea that faith alone and Christ alone is the only key to one's salvation. But as you know, Kingsley told them that again and again and again. The grace of God. He uh, also had a friend or met him there by the name of Kurt, and they went together to a mall called the Quicks Bar. And there it is. It's kind of interesting. I'm, don't ask me who that man is, the statue. 
but it's pretty realistic. Big guy, I don't know, but that was a great place for him. That was in the mall. Or the, or the, it's similar to our Walmart, and uh, they hung around at the exit, and they talked to people, had Bible tracts shared with them. Many listened and, and left with a smile on their faces. Then, oh, here's, here's another picture, this time with his friend Kurt, and uh, together outside the mall. Kind of looks like a Publix, actually, you know, and a Walmart. I don't know, the color is green. But also, he went to a lion park, game reserve. He went there because people from very, all kinds of countries go there to visit this site. It's very popular. He said there were a huge number of fierce-looking lions, tigers, and cheetahs. He wanted you to know that. And uh, while they were there, they ran into a group of Seventh-day Adventist missionaries from the United States. So he had to took up his courage and went there and witnessed the five of them. And then, uh, as I mentioned, just mentioned, he was not able to move to Johannesburg City. He was to go there and teach the local church, but there was a lot of violence, I mentioned this, that took place three weeks ago, and a lot of fear in that city. And the violence was, took place against uh, black people from other countries. Now, well, you know Kingsley's black, you saw a picture of him, and he's from another country. So, um, as a protection, he didn't go there. He'll be worshiping today in a nearby local church, and again, he will depart for Canada on Sunday. He asked us to pray for the people of South Africa, that, the, that his word would, God's word would be spread and the gospel would be delivered. And he also uh, wants to thank all of us, myself, the family of Lighthouse Bible Church, for our gracious support and the privilege we have allowed for him to reach out to souls around the world. So I wanted to let you know about that this morning. That's a report from Pastor Kingsley. Also, I uh, mentioned this last week, we are going to be uh, going into the public school. Um, Deerfield Beach Middle School program is called First Priority. They are allowed to bring the gospel to public schools through student clubs that are student-run. It's pretty amazing. We've adopted, as it were, Deerfield Beach Middle School. The first event is uh, Wednesday, October 16th, so please keep that in prayer. And then finally, we have Bibles in the back. If anybody needs one, just raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We're about to study the Bible, so make sure you have one in front of you. Speaking of the Bible, I'd like you now to turn to 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen. Here it is. 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen. 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen. I'll introduce the subject, give everybody an opportunity to get there. 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen. Right after the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen. Sorry. And we'll begin. But in giving, this is Paul, of course, writing to the the church of God in Corinth. And he now says this. But in giving this instruction, the one that now follows, I do not praise you. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one who is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. 
Now, last week, we saw Paul introducing a new subject in verse 2 about women's position and the, their role in the church and prayer and, and um, teaching and wearing hats. The custom then was to have a covering over the head of the ladies, especially they were um, do worshiping and, and even uh, singing and praying and so forth. So he's not going to be praising, though, the Corinthians in today's passage. We saw that already. I will not praise you, he says. Now we are beginning a section that will go to the end of chapter 11. And he's dealing with a serious problem. Essentially, they're desecrating the Lord's Supper. They're they're doing things that are the exact contradiction to what the Lord's Supper is celebrating, is remembering. Some of the saints are doing that, not all of them. Well, today we're going to look at the first part. There are actually three parts of this last section in chapter 11, from verses 17 to 22, which we just read and which we'll be studying today and listening to today. Paul calls out the saints and rebukes them, strong language, for their abuses at the Lord's Supper. That's where we are today, all right? They're, they're abusing the Lord's Supper. He calls them on it and rebukes them. Then, in verses 23 to 26, here's where Paul delivers the instructions he got from the Lord about his supper, the Lord's Supper. That's in the middle, because that's the central part of this. And then after that, he comes back to the reason why he had to bring the Lord's Supper into this letter. He warns them, if they continue to do what they're doing, That's an abuse of the Lord's Supper that's desecrating it. There will be judgment. In fact, there already is some at the church. And he exhorts them, therefore, to correct the abuses. Talks about the abuses and rebukes them. Brings in the Lord's Supper as the solution. And then warns them and exhorts them to correct the abuses. That's what we're at now in in the second part here of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Today, we'll examine the first one, this one where Paul calls them out and rebukes them for their abuses at the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 17 again. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. There's outrageous behavior that he's gotten a report on, and he's rebuking them for it. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, he's saying, don't you dare expect me to praise you for this next issue I'm going to have to address. That's how he begins his rebuke. He won't praise them. By the way, if you look down to verse 22, he ends this part the same way. Look at that. We'll get there, but I just want to see the, the bookends, the first and the last verse here today. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. He repeats that at the end so they don't miss the point. But here in verse 17, he calls them on the carpet right away so there couldn't be any misunderstanding. This is what he basically says. He says, you know what? The way you're behaving right now as a congregation, you'd be better off not even assembling as a church. Think about that. Think about a pastor or an apostle saying, you know what? The way you're behaving now when you gather together, forget about it. Don't even get together which is pretty strong when you think about the whole point of, uh, of our, who we are after we believe in Christ is to be one body and to hear the word together and to remember the Lord and all those things and saying and all of that. He's saying, don't even do that because you're way off in your thinking. You have not the slightest understanding of what the body of Christ is really all about. 
He says, when you guys get together, things get worse. You know, there's problems. When you get together, they're worse. They're amplified, not better. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Please, verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24. The way you're behaving, you'd be better off not even getting together. Things get worse rather than better when you come together. Well, in in Hebrews 10, we're going to find out how it's supposed to be. How it's supposed to be when the saints gather and assemble. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Give everybody a moment to get there. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's why we assemble. We are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what's supposed to be going on in in the congregation. Now here he says, please come together, right? We just saw Paul say, the way you're behaving now, you don't even bother coming together. But the way it's supposed to work is that we gather together on a regular basis, but with the right frame of mind, with the right heart, which is about love and good deeds. And he goes on some more and he says, but encouraging one another. In other words, encouragement, not discouragement. We're going to see how discouraging their behavior of some of them will be towards the rest of them. We'll see that today. But notice the one another. This is the key. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. See, see the point is, is that, and the New Testament is full of this expression. Love one another. Take care of one another. Be kind to one another. And so forth. It's all about one another. It's all about the unity we're to have together in the bonds of love. That's what the assembling is supposed to bring out and further. Look out for one another. Take care of each other. Encourage one another. And of all things, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about that. Of all things. It's supposed to be about unity. We'll see why. It's supposed to be about loving each other. Helping out those in need. The Lord's Supper meal. And we'll see why I say the Lord's Supper meal in a little while too. I'm setting you up. You say, well, you better say all those things because he's telling me all these things he's going to tell me. Don't worry. The Lord's Supper meal is supposed to be about unity. And he's basically saying, if you're not united, then you've got, you got some explaining to do. There's some, you've got to change your thinking, change your ways. Because when you gather together, especially with the meal that is the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to love each other and help out those most in need. They were doing the opposite. They were scorning and looking down on those most in need. In other words, they're doing the exact opposite to this at their supposed meal. He's saying to them, you know what? You really don't come together. Oh, your bodies come together, but you're not coming together, being united, being as one. You're not doing that. See, he's saying you're more divided at the end than you were at the beginning. In other words, they come in divided. That's not a good start. But when they leave, they're even more divided. (laughs) Now picture this. Think about being a part of that kind of a local assembly. They exist today. They really do. Um, we have to be careful that we don't have any elements of that too. That's the reason really why this is there. It's not just to look at, oh, how terrible those people were in the first century. We don't, we don't do any of that. Well, we do, and we'll see more about that at the end. 
Yeah, they weren't coming together. They come in divided, and they're more divided at the end than they were at the beginning. The grievances keep piling up. That's what happens when you're divided. When you're divided, you do things that are hurtful to one another. You try, you try to put it over on one another. You try to be superior to the other group. You try to put down the other group. And so you get more and more grievances. They're piling up. So that's what Paul is hearing about. And he doesn't like it. And he's calling him on it. And it's interesting. This is something Paul doesn't do much. But he, this time, he's going to take sides. See, there's two groups here. Okay? Basically, the haves and the have-nots to save you the this, this suspense. And he's going to take sides. He's going to be on the side of the have-nots in this situation. He's going to point his finger at the guilty party. All right. Look at verse 18. From the first place, when you, quote, come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For in the first place, by the way, there's no second place. It's an interesting one. You know, it's almost like there was, there was more than one thing he wanted to lay out here, but he gets so worked up, the spirit in him is so grieved that, he's, that he never even talks about the other things. Basically, at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, oh yeah, those other things, well, those have to wait until I come see you. All right. In the first place, when you come together as a church, you're physically together, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. I have to tell you that this particular verse... There's a lot of irony in it. It's ironic what he's saying here. The first one is when you come together. They weren't coming together up here. That was a smokescreen. You know how it is. You know how families, when they have a lot of conflict in the family and they go out to dinner, you know how they try to pretend, uh, oh, it's so great to see you, and you know, sit right here next to me and all of that nonsense, right? When in reality, they're saying on the inside, why do I have to be here with those people? So that was what was going on in the gathering together at Corinth, there was a smokescreen. In fact, they were divided and getting worse. They weren't together. They weren't united. And notice the expression, in part, I believe it. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist. He gets a report, probably from Chloe's people, if you remember them from chapter 1. He said, I'm hearing that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. In part, I believe it. Now, one could take from that the idea that he didn't believe all of the report. That's not what he's saying here. Not at all. This is what he's saying, in effect. He says, I can't believe it's as bad as I'm told it is. I can't believe. You know how you say that? I can't believe what I'm hearing about you. That's really what he's saying here. You see, um, whoops, we're already there. See, he does believe it. After all the things that he's already dealt with, This is just one more. And he does believe, as horrible as they're behaving in the Lord's Supper meal, he believes it. But you see, he wants the Corinthians to feel the heat of his shock and disappointment. Think about it, right? Isn't that what happens? You come home and you're a kid from school and the reports of your misbehavior preceded you and you walk in the door and your mom stares at you and says, I can't believe what I'm hearing about you. Right? Now what does that do? It's saying, wait a minute. There were some things about me she could believe, but this one's so bad, I can't believe it. Can you see the irony in this biting um, critique that is in that way of him expressing it? He wants the Corinthians to feel the heat of his shock and disappointment, which he, was, which he had. In other words, he's saying something like this. I'm not naive, you know. 
In fact, if I could accept the report, if it were half as bad as they say this one is, this is unbelievable. You've gone too far. That's what he's saying here. Verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, the key thing that we're going to have to see in answer is, who are those who are approved? That's the key here, isn't it? See, there are, there, okay, there are times when there'll be factions, but those factions will reveal those who are approved. They'll become evident among you. So in the back of our head, we should be asking, well, who are those? What marks the ones who are approved? And maybe the, who they think are the approved ones are not really, in God's eyes, approved. We'll see, we'll see what this is all about. See, he's basically saying it's inevitable. You're going to have disputes and squabbles. Any family does, right? If you're not having any disputes and squabbles, well, you're probably not even talking to each other, you know? Because, I mean, we have differences, and that's okay. Sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you just got to clear the air about something. But other times, you see, there's a, one faction in there, is on the low road, fleshly. The other faction is taking the high road, spiritual. Remember we saw that? The distinction he made between those who are still fleshly, immature, and those who are spiritual, more mature. He says there's times when that's how you break out. Some of you are taking the low road. You're giving into your flesh. You're being fleshly. You're the sins of the flesh. The other one is taking the high road, loving, loving one another, understanding the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And, and discerning what the body of Christ is all about when we gather together. We come together as, in unity. He said that's what's going on, and that's good at times, because when things come to a head, now it becomes obvious who's who. You know how that is. When everything's going well and there's no conflict, well, everyone can, you know, fake it till they make it. You know what I'm saying? But when something serious happens, people reveal what's going on in their hearts. You know what I'm saying? When, when, we are, when we're all familiar with one another, that's great. But when somebody comes in and they, they, they look the way they dress or the color of their skin or the, something about them, people will split on it. Some will say, you know what, why are they here? The other ones will say, wait a minute. There's no, there's no Jew or Gentile, you know, rich or poor. None of that matters. You see, they split according to their maturity. According to whether they're fleshly, they see things from a human worldly point of view, or whether they're spiritual, see things with the mind of Jesus Christ. That's a split, and sometimes it becomes obvious what's going on. There were those in the Corinthian church who came together at the Lord's Supper meal in order to honor the death of the Lord. I want you to think about what that means, though. Honor the death of the Lord. How do you honor the death of the Lord? Do you honor the death of the Lord by creating turmoil and divisions in the congregation as we gather together for the Lord's Supper? Is that honoring the death of the Lord? Of course not. In fact, it's a contradiction to the death of the Lord. He died for all. All right. So therefore, since they understood and, honored and wanted to honor the death of the Lord, they were all about preserving the unity of the congregation. And they were, as it were, tried and true. You know that expression, tried and true? Right? Tried and true friend. Tried and true member of the congregation. 
That's, that's what's going on here. Those are the people that are approved, tried and true, tested and found authentic and real. Well, here's where things get really interesting when it comes to Paul rebuking the church in Corinth. See, there are definitely clear divisions in the church, but here's what they thought. You see, there was one faction who thought they were the approved ones. You know how that is. Oh, we're the approved ones. There may be different reasons for that. They may be saying, look, you know, we're the ones that are wealthy and have the beautiful house, and we get, everybody comes over to here, and you know what? Uh, that's, that's the way it is because we're, you know, we're better. And, you know, we've behaved right. We've, uh, we've been moral or whatever they think they've been. And as a result, you know, we've been approved by the Lord. That's why we have what we have. And therefore, we've got to be the better ones. You know how that goes. The ones who always draw attention to themselves. The ones who feel like they're in the in crowd. They're in tight with the pastor. Those kind of things. They thought they were the approved ones, the better ones, the elite, right? There's, there's people who will divide that way. You know, there's people who say, well, you know, I just want to hang out with this group because these are the approved ones. You know, we're, we're the ones that are closer to the Lord. And those other people, pff, they got some work to do. That's what their attitude was. They were the top shelf. They were the first class Christians, the inner circle. We'll see that literally that's what they thought they were. As a matter of fact, that's what they were doing. We'll see about that. How big is the list now? We'll see about that. (laughs) We will. I know where I'm headed. But here's the issue. That kind of an inner circle, how do you get in? How do you get into that kind of worldly circle, the inner circle, the top shelf, first class? Here's how. By being on top according to the ways of the world. Notice. They, were, they thought they were the top of the line because they were measuring things by the ways of the world. By the ways of the world. Who's popular? Who do people want to be around? Who seems like they've made it and they're a success in the world? You see? That's how you get in that inner circle. And it was easy back then because Roman society was organized according to classes. That's how everybody saw it. You know, there was the, there was the Senate in Rome. Man, that was really good unless you were Caesar. That was the best. And then you had the aristocracy. And then you had sort of like the people that were hard workers. So they may have had a few things, but they weren't really, a, you know, they weren't aristocratic. And then you had the poor and the former slaves. And that's how things worked in the everyday world of Corinth. But that shouldn't be the way things work inside the church. You see, now we've seen this again and again, how the ills of the world kept creeping into the congregation at Corinth. We've seen that many times. Remember how we saw that they, they came from a place where the courts were rigged and that if you were rich, you're probably going to win your case. And what was happening was that some, some of the better off, the high status members of the church of Corinth were taking to court the poor, the former slaves. And they knew the chances were about 99% they were going to win. But that was the ways of the world. And Paul says, don't you bring that in here. You better see things the way the Lord sees things. Don't you understand that you're bringing your case before unbelievers? And he said, you know what? The lowliest believer in our congregation would be a better judge than the best judge in the world. And I mean that literally in the world. So they've been doing this, trying to bring the ills of the worldly thinking in Corinth 
into the church? Well, they're in for a shock. Quite simply, God's ways are not man's ways. You know, that's something that we need to remember. We need to check ourselves, right? You know, am I seeing this according to man's ways? In other words, am I seeing this the same way I would have seen it before I became a believer? Has nothing changed in my heart? Or am I really looking at it God's way? Now, how do you look at things God's way? Well, he's not going to come on down and whisper in your ear. He's, you know, but he, he did write you some letters 2,000 years ago. You learn God's way, the mind of Christ in the Bible. And then the idea is that that will seep into your heart. And by grace of God and the power of the Spirit, that becomes how you think. That's, that's being according to God's ways. Now, they were on the inside, the inner circle. and they, made, they put themselves there. But when God comes on the scene and he's ready to judge what's going on, really, they're going to find themselves on the outside looking in. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that how God works? Often. You know, if you were to think about um, the family of David, the brothers, he was the runt of the litter. He was the youngest Lily had red hair, the other ones didn't. They were bigger and stronger and more attractive. So by the ways of the world, they, they were thinking when it was time to anoint a king, it's got to be the older brother, the oldest brother. But God's ways weren't man's ways. You see, the Lord's looking at the heart. He could care less how tall or short you are, how rich or poor, whether you're famous or nothing, whether you're a slave, any of those things, whether you're a man or woman. He doesn't look at the externals the color of your skin. He looks at what's going on in the heart. That's who he promotes. When he makes his evaluations, it's on that basis. And that's why Jesus said, many who are first will be last. Many who thought they were first in Corinth will be revealed as last. The ones who understood the least about what the cross is all about. Now, none of this should have been a surprise if they were listening, had been listening when the earlier chapters of the letter were being read out loud. You see, that's what happened in the old days, in those times. Paul would write a letter. He would have it taken. They didn't have the U.S. mail or FedEx or UPS back then. So someone literally had to walk that letter, sometimes hundreds of miles, to the congregation in which it was being sent. And so they read the letter out loud. People assembled and they read the letter from start to finish. See, see, you should be thankful that I don't do that every week. That I don't say, today, we're going to study the letter of 1 Corinthians. I mean the whole letter. And we're going to read it five times together. But that's what they did when they assembled. They had a, they had a much better attention span, by the way, in the first century A.D. You know, why would that be? Well, first of all, they didn't have electricity. That's a big one. They didn't have cars. If you don't have electricity, you don't have a television. If you don't have electricity, you definitely don't have the smartphone. So they had, they had a lot fewer distractions. And they were trained to listen and hear. That's how they got their information, their entertainment, stories were told. Music was, you know that there was a time when music was actually live? In other words, there were actually people right in front of you with instruments, like maybe a guitar or whatever. And they played for you. Hard to believe, isn't it? But that's the way things were back then. So they were trained to hear and understand. Well, if they'd been doing that, they should already realize that God's ways weren't man's ways, especially in the church. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. We'll be back in 11, but go back to chapter 1. When we first started studying 
the letter of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.26. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For us, I think this was about five months ago. For them, it was the same day, the same place they heard this. This is what they had previously heard. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. You see, that was because most of the, of the society in Corinth was not the aristocratic. It was the poor. Right? There weren't many wise according to the flesh, according to the flesh, man's ways. Not many mighty according to the world's standards. Not many noble, not many aristocrats. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This chosen is not to salvation, though. This is chosen for a purpose, for a function. What was their function? God has chosen the foolish things, according to the world, to shame the wise, the so-called wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. They dis- the, the ones who were thinking that they were the top shelf were despising the others. Do you despise the church of God? That's the question that Paul asked them at the end today. So he says, listen, God has chosen the poor, the second class, the ones who you put out in the least important place, not the people in the inner circle here. Why? Because they were the ones that had the true understanding of the cross and the gospel. You don't. See it? The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, things that are not, those who are least esteemed in the community, the things that are not, Why? So that he may nullify the things that are. Cut everybody down to the same size. That's what happens at the cross. All of us came to the cross. Remember, we're seeing this on Thursday. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Hopeless. Under the wrath of God. Nothing going for us in terms of spiritual. We all started there. We're all the same at the cross. So he's saying that's why. It's not that he likes the or, or, you know, chooses some for salvation, likes people a little more when they enter into the church. No. It's because he, we needed to cut everybody down to the same size. That's how you get equal. That's how you get unity. You know what? I'm not better than anybody else here. As a matter of fact, I know I'm probably worse. We should all think that way, by the way. You know why we should think we're worse than the other people? This is why. Because we're on the inside of ourselves. Everybody else sees the mask. You know? We see the truth. And that ought to humble us. He says, listen, I want to nullify the things that are. Why? So that some may go to the lake of fire. Is that what that says? And why? So that no man may boast before God. And they were doing plenty of boasting. We've seen this already. The so-called wise, the so-called mighty, so-called noble. We're boasting of things. We'll see in chapter 12, 13, and 14 that some were even boasting of their spiritual gift. They, they, they thought it made them better. It showed that they were the approved ones because they had a more spectacular spiritual gift. When after, again, the opposite was true. The one who was willing to serve the other was the one who was approved. Well, it's interesting because up to this point, Paul hasn't revealed the specific nature. He's talking about factions and division, but he hasn't really told us the nature of the divisions. Well, now in verse 20... He's going to do exactly that. If you could go to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, 20. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. 20. 
he's now going to reveal, well, what's the nature of the division that he's talking about now that was going on when they gathered together for the Lord's Supper meal? And it's raw and it's right to the point. You know, Paul could have been, you know, poetic, philosophical, even theological, doctrinal here. Uh Uh-uh. He's going to take an image. He says, this is what you look like. Notice, 1 Corinthians 11.20. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. What? Of course it is. That's why we got together. No, it is not to eat the real Lord's Supper. What is it? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. In other words, it's not about the Lord's Supper. (laughs) It's about your supper. That's what your mind is on. Your mind isn't on the cross, on the fact that we're all one in Christ. Your mind is on the great food that you brought and how you're going to eat every last bit of it yourself. Their supper, not the Lord's. Then he goes on and describes, well, what is, what are you talking? One is hungry. You're gathering together for the Lord's Supper meal. One body in Christ, the one bread, the one cup, and yet, here we have it. Some of you are, are famished. They, they don't eat well most of the week, and then they come here and it's no different. It's no different from how they are in the world. Others are drunk. That word just means totally satisfied and actually intoxicated. Maybe you're intoxicated on food, maybe on wine, but the point is, is you had too much. More than enough. That's how you did it. You just took everything that you brought and consumed it. So he's saying, it's not about the Lord. The way you guys, this is why he's saying you're better off not even coming together. Because it's not about the Lord's Supper when you come together. It's about your own meal. It's about what, that, what you want to have people know about you. By the way you bring your food and what you bring and who you're with. That's what it's about. You're not eating and drinking for God's glory like he said at the end of chapter 10. You're eating for your own glory. Let that sink in. Understand how that's the opposite. There's so many people, eat, when they gather together, and they want, it's, they're there for their own glory. They want everyone's attention to be on them. They want to do something spectacular in the congregation, on stage, so that everyone will say, wow, what a great so-and-so he is, or she is. That's what they're really about. That's why they come on in. That's why they came to the Lord's Supper. It wasn't about the Lord's Supper. You can't eat of the table of the Lord at the table of selfishness. You can't. You cannot eat of the table of the Lord and the table of selfishness. If that's what you're doing, you're better off not being here. Because you're actually going to bring judgment on yourself if you do that. It's all about you. If you're acting selfishly when you gather together for the Lord's Supper, watch out. Now, at this point, we come on back to us today. You're probably thinking, this doesn't make any sense. I've never seen that happen at the Lord's Supper, right? In other words, most of the time when churches celebrate the Lord's Supper, you don't see people, you know, bringing in the filet mignon and, you know, all the best wine and so forth. But you see, that it was different. You see, back then, it was a meal. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, uh, a cele- uh, uh, what am I saying? It wasn't just, not a ritual, but it wasn't just a, um, okay, like we do it, you know. Now we're going to have the elements. and No, it was a whole meal. So we've got to go back again. Transport ourselves now back to Corinth. Back in the first century A.D., 
Corinth, remember, it was a, it was a Roman colony back then. Remember, New Lost Lulu, any of you, I know it was a long time ago. But it was really, if you think about it, a combination of New York, Las Vegas, and Honolulu. If you think about it in those terms, right? That, that was what it was. Well, and I mentioned this already, but there were a few, just a few rich aristocrats in Corinth. Just about everyone else was poor. So you need to know that. As a matter of fact, something else you need to know. Please go to the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. So you have a few rich aristocrats. Everyone else was poor. A lot of them were former slaves. Something else you need to know, though, about the church in the first century. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. This is the very end where Paul brings the greetings of others to the church at Corinth, and he says this. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord. With Notice this, though. With the church, that is where? In their house. In their house. You see, back in the first century, the churches assembled together in private homes. That's how they did it. They got together in a private home. If you imagine, that could be a great place. A place of warmth and family and informality and all the kind of things. Friendship. It could be. That's what it was when Aquila and Prisca invited people over for the church services. That's not what it was in Corinth, however. You see, they gathered in, in private homes, but you know, probably maybe at least 30 or 40 people. So they had to be big private homes. There's a picture of a Roman villa in the first century. We'll talk about some more about this. There's a cutout showing the rooms. It's hard to see, but I'll, I'll just point out one thing, a couple of things actually right now. See this? Can you see how this is kind of a separate room? Where you had maybe room for like nine people at tops. And then you had out here, it's called the atrium, where there's a lot room, more room, but there were no seats. You see, people had to stand or sit on, their, on the floor out here. Preview. But there was a big, it was a big home, so a lot of people could fit. Well, here's the deal. Few rich aristocrats, mostly poor. Um, here's something that uh, you probably haven't, well, you, this is something that never changes, which is poor people don't own big homes, usually. Now, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, and definitely here, a former slave would never get to the point where he would be able to buy a home like that. You see, it was, the, it was the well-off people, the aristocrats. And the Lord's Supper at this time was not a ceremony. That was the word I was searching for. It wasn't a ceremony, okay? It was a full-on dinner party. That's what it was. Now, think about the church and outside. Well, in the Roman practice, their society, they would, they would, make a, they would accentuate class distinctions. They would make them more obvious. You know what I'm saying? They would, they, would, they would do things that make everybody know these are the aristocrats and these aren't. That's what they did at their dinner parties. It was a form of you know, having those who made it flaunt the fact that they had done that. That's what the Romans did at dinner parties. So, back to the, back to the home. Many of these large homes had two dining areas. This 
It was private. It's called the triclinium. I'll explain that in a minute. So there are only a few. Only the aristocrats could be in that room. And then you had what's called the atrium. This is where the hoi polloi, the common people, would be. That's how, that's how it worked. In a lot of, at least in the Roman homes, that was the way it worked. The worldly Roman homes. Okay, here's another picture. Kind of dark. But here we see if you were one of the aristocrats, one of the in crowd, the friend in the same social class as the host, this is where you would have your meal. Isn't that nice? Couches, you could recline on them. Servants would come in and put the food down. Maybe it was a five-course meal or something like that, and the wine. Very nice. Now notice that you can look out on the great unwashed. You see that? But you were in a special room, and everybody else was out there. Kind of nice if you were one of these people. Not so nice if you're out here. We'll see about that. So the first one is called the triclinium. Okay, tri. What's a tricycle? Three wheels. What's a triangle? Three sides. What's a triclinium? Three couches. <laughs> really, that's what, that's what it means in the Latin. It's Latin for three couches. It can only hold about nine guests. Keep in mind that the, the assembly was probably 40 or 50. There were nine in the special room. Everybody else was somewhere else. Well, the interesting thing is, of course, that in Roman culture, the host would just select the first-class people, that the ones that were of the same social level as they were. They would dine with him in the triclinium. There's a picture of it. Is that, can you see that? Right, here we have the three couches again. One, two, three. Can you see that people are so comfortable? They're actually almost lying down, eating. They only needed one hand because the servants were coming in and giving them everything they needed. That's the triclinium. That's the place to be, right? No. <laughs> From a worldly point of view, anyway. All right. But unfortunately, most people didn't make the cut. They were out in the atrium. There's the atrium. Again, can you see how you were? You're eating a meal, supposedly. But there's no tables. There's no couches. There's nothing. There's just places to stand. Maybe if you're lucky, you could be in the corner and sit. But other than that, it was a pretty uncomfortable place. Forty people. Now, here's a picture of that. I mean, it was a nice, believe me, it was a nice home. It's not as if they were, you know. But can you see how everyone had to walk around? If they were bringing something to eat, they were like, well, what do I do with this now? I don't know where to put it. And, you know, hey, why don't you have some? You know, that's, that's what it was out there. Everyone's standing. Speaking of cuts... Cuts of meat, the honored guests were served much better food and wine than the others. Much better. Well, that's how it was in Roman society. The sad thing, the unfortunate thing, is that here in Corinth, they in the church at Corinth, now the church, they carry this practice over, listen to this, the community meal of the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about that. This is the community meal of the Lord's Supper. And here we have... These people, right? They're having a great time, but then we have the people out here. Not so great. The honored guests serve much better food and much better wine than the others. Unfortunately, this practice carried over in, in Corinth into the community meal of the Lord's Supper where it had no business being. Look at verse 20. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. 
Yeah, you were in 16, right? Yeah. Yeah, back to 11. 1 Corinthians 11.20 Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. There's no way people behaving like we just saw were eating the Lord's Supper. For, your, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper. In other words, they brought their own food and ate it themselves. And what happens when there's the case? One is hungry. People out here. And one is, you know, completely full and maybe even intoxicated, right? That's what it says. It says, therefore, when you, eat together, when you meet together, quote, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, not hardly. In your eating, each one takes his own supper first. Selfishness, the opposite of what the Lord's Supper celebration is supposed to be. So one is, what happens when you do that? You split. There's a division. You have the hungry people and the drunk people. He's not mincing words. He illustrates it. Makes the point clear. Now, if you think about it, if you were in the special place, the triclinium, you probably make a big deal of how well off you are and how privileged you are. And, you know, what a lovely roast duck. Cassis, you know. Top shelf wine. Somebody would look at that. Oh, you brought that? Woo! That cost a pretty penny. You know how it is. That's what they were doing. And unfortunately, though, even though they brought their own food. The aristocrats would bring great food, delicious food, great wine, lots of it. Now, so far, so good. You know, when we have our, uh, our luncheons, right, some of that happens. Some people bring something like great, you know, like a whole thing of ham or whatever. And, uh, but now, that is fantastic when everybody gets to eat the same thing. That's unity, right? The Lord's Supper. There's one body. There's one church. That's what it's about. It's beautiful when it works that way. Unfortunately, they, it didn't work that way. They didn't share a thing that they brought with the poor. Nothing. Nothing. So the fat cats get fatter. They're having a feast. They're gorging themselves. And they were sure they deserved all this. In fact, they thought it was generous for them even to allow the common people to dine in the same home with them. Meanwhile, the poor people out there in the atrium... Now, they may not even be able to afford to bring anything. Think about that. They don't have any money to bring anything. They just showed up hoping against hope that they would be served some food. So they were famished when they arrived. Unfortunately, they were still famished when they left. Imagine how they felt. Imagine being one of those. You got crumbs to eat. Barely more than the the mice would eat. You're standing uncomfortably. In the very next room, people are lounging and reclining on very comfortable couches. You're standing. You're uncomfortable. You know, I don't know if you're ever in a situation where... I always get in this situation when I, like, go to the grocery store. I never do because my wife does most of the, almost all. Um, but, like, me, I never remember to get a cart, right? Or even one of those handle things. So I'm walking around, and for a while it's great. Oh, all right, I want this. I want that. All of a sudden, I got only got two hands. I'm not going to balance it on my head, right? Can you imagine going to a wedding and being forced to stand while you ate the main course? Think about how fun that would be. You can't. You can't even. You can have. You can do this, hold the plate, and do that. But what are you going to do with the drink? You know, very uncomfortable situation. In the very next room, people feasting, great food, reclining comfortably. You heard the laughter. You heard the carrying on. 
It got louder and louder as things progressed. It must have made them feel ashamed, inferior, angry even. Some Lord's Supper meal this is. We're supposed to be bringing it to remembrance the death of the Lord. How we're all one in Christ. But I don't think those fat cats got the memo. This is nothing but a cruel joke. In other words, they were making a mockery. And see, a lot of the poor people understood this. They're making a mockery of the death of the Lord. They're acting like enemies of the cross. It was a total mockery of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Christ died for all. The just for the unjust. We were all unjust. The fat cats, the poor, the former slaves, we were all in the same category. Christ died for all of us. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial to that. A memorial to Christ's sacrifice. A memorial to the fact that Jesus Christ was thinking of us, not himself. That's, what, that's the mind of the Lord's Supper. right? Think about Christ's sacrifice. Understand that he in his death thought about others, not himself. We should do the same thing. We should think about it. When we gather together, we should think about the other people, not ourselves. Please turn to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This was the mind of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor. He could have been in the triclinium, but instead he went out in the atrium with us so that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. The Lord's Supper now, some of the saints understood this. They understood that the bread signified the body of the Lord. They understood that. and they, Therefore, they also discerned what the assembly was. We're all one body. We're all one body. The bread, the body of the Lord, we're all unified. We're all one body. So when you think that way, when you understand you're gathered together to celebrate the death of the Lord, bring it into remembrance (laughs) that the bread represented the body of the Lord, that we were all one body, all one, you act to preserve the unity at the table of the Lord. You're all about unity. How do you preserve unity? It's really simple. Think about others rather than yourself. That's how you preserve the unity. Well, guess what? Those were the approved. Remember we asked, we have to identify who the approved were? Those are the approved. The ones who understand the real meaning of the Lord's Supper and behave accordingly. All right, back to 1 Corinthians eleven We've got to wrap this up. And we will do that if I have to skip something. Don't feel bad. 1 Corinthians, you're like, I don't feel bad, man. I've got to get out of here. Almost 10 after, and I got a football game. I'm just teasing. You guys are great. I know that you, I know that you love the word. So 1 Corinthians 11, 22. Just describe the fact that some are hungry and the others are drunk. He says, what? Can you hear him yelling? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? Shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. See, Paul asks questions here, four of them. It's all rhetorical. He knows the answer, and so do they now. Why did he do that? Well, a lot of times Paul does this. 
When he really wants to rebuke things, when he wants to turn up the temperature, he asks questions. Do you not know? Remember, we saw that question. He's saying, listen, I ask questions as a rebuke. It's going to sting. And it's directed towards the rich social climbers who were making a mockery of the cross. No wonder he wanted it to sting. They were despising the church of God, those for whom Christ died. Paul's rhetoric would cut them down to size. What does despise mean? It means contempt. They had contempt for the poor and all those who were lower status than they were. It made them feel that they had no value, the poor. They looked down on the poor. They thought nothing of them. Who are these people? Why are they even here? And it made them feel very, very small. And Paul is saying, listen, when you're dining with your hoity-toity friends in your own home, you can eat whatever you want. Have the gourmet meal. Have the fine wines. However, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, you better treat everybody the same. Everybody is the same. There's no distinctions. All united. You know what? If you have an abundance, bring it to supply others' needs. So that he who doesn't have much won't lack anything. And he who has a lot won't have too much. We're one family. Now on the streets of Corinth, picture it. A man may be out there and he's ignored made to feel worthless out there in the streets. He might never have been invited to share a meal with the upper-class family. Ever, never, never. However, when that man gathers together with the saints for the Lord's Supper meal, this is what should happen. He should be welcomed, well-fed, and loved on. That should be our heart with every one of us. Welcome. Everybody gets well-fed and loved on. And I think that is what happens when we have our luncheon. But remember, this was not only was it gathering together to eat, it was the Lord's Supper meal. So yes, what the Corinthians were doing was outrageous. It was beyond the pale. However, we can't let ourselves off the hook. You know how it is. I've never done anything that bad. And maybe you haven't. But that doesn't mean that you're off the hook at all. See, the point of this passage, or one like it, is to cause us to examine ourselves. That's what we should be doing. We love examining others, finding fault. But the point of this is to look inside and examine ourselves. What about us? It's time for me to ask questions about us. Do we look down on certain, not just us, but anybody who will hear this message? Do we look down on certain brothers and sisters in Christ? Consider who you socialize with and who you don't. And ask yourself, why is that? Do we do things that feel normal to us, but make others feel ashamed, inadequate? Is there anyone among us who feels ignored or worthless? And are we reluctant to speak with certain people because we just can't relate to them? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, it's time for things to change. It's time to be devoted to one another in love, giving preference to one another. It's time to contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. That's what it's time for. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that Paul had great reason to rebuke and chastise the the, the saints in Corinth who were making a big display of themselves. They were selfish. It was the opposite of the death of your son. But Father, we also understand that We're fleshly too at times. We understand that we have the same temptations. We're out there in the world. We see how things operate out there. 
And it's very tempting to bring some of that into the congregation. Please help us not to, by taking to heart Paul's rebuke here, by understanding the questions we need to ask and, to, and have the, allow the Holy Spirit to make the adjustments in our heart through the Word of God. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're gathering together again on Thursday evening at 7. We're having a Bible study on eternal security. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are secure forever. You are declared righteous in God's eyes. You're given eternal life. You're forgiven of all your sins. None of that can be taken away. That's, That's what we're looking at. We're going at it and looking at a lot of scriptures because there's a lot of arguments that people try to make. There's a lot of people that don't believe that. Well, they're just not paying attention. But neither death nor life, nor principalities and powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing will ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And just remember that. Well, I want to also tell you that when we gather together on Thursdays, we pray at the end. We want to pray for what you want us to pray for. But we won't know what that is unless you give us that information. So we have a box in the back. And we also have a web on our website, www.lbible.org, where there's a place there where you can also put your requests in. If you have bad handwriting, I recommend the web. Sometimes we're looking at it. What is that? Um, finally, I want to let you know, you may, you may wonder, well, wait a minute. Um, well, a lot of churches I've been to, they This is the time when they pass around the hat. We don't. We don't pass around the hat. We don't ask you to ever make pledges. You see, because that would not be in keeping with what we're told to do as Christians. What we're told to do is to freely give when we can. Out of the right heart. Out of the heart we were talking about at the end. So that others may have what we have. Others may hear the gospel. Others may have the word of God preached. Others may gather here together. All those things. That's our heart in giving. Not, oh, we have to. Not, oh, I've got to calculate 10% of my income this month. None of that. From the heart. Freely giving. That's why we don't pass the hat around at the end. And again, just remember, never, never lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're all born sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. Nobody is accepted from that. And yet, God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Our sins, He bore in His body on the cross. And then He was buried to show that He, he died. He was God and He was man. And in His manhood, He died. He really died. And then he, and three days later, on the third day, God the Father raised Him from the dead. And whoever believes that about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me now, will never perish, will never be condemned, but instead as eternal life. It's a simple, powerful message. It's the word of the cross that is powerful and saves people. You don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to say it the right way. You just have to know the message and deliver it. God will take care of the rest. All right. If you have any questions about the message today, the gospel, or anything else in the Bible, you can come on up and speak with me after service. I'll be up here in the front as I am every week. Let's close. Father, we thank you for having us gather together today as one body. We thank you that you challenged us in this part of 1 Corinthians to understand and discern that fact. To understand that the one bread 
means that is Christ's body dying for all of us, but it's also us being one. Help us to keep that in mind and act and live that way. And as we leave today, Father, we would ask that the word would dwell deeply in our hearts and, and that we would be changed by it so that the way we live the rest of this time before we gather together again will be a reflection of Christ, of your thinking. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.